revived and ready for continued ministry and shepherding this congregation. I ask you would use me as your vessel, Lord. It blesses me that you knew who would be here and what's going on in each person's life and marriage and family, and, and you know intimately their relationships with you or absence of relationships with you. And so I just pray you'd use me as your vessel to speak to your people, Lord, and that they, this wouldn't be so much a time that they hear from me, but a time that they hear from you and that your Holy Spirit would meet with them. And I just thank you and ask you can be pleased with what takes place. You'll receive the glory and honor you deserve through this message. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. In college, I was in ROTC, Army ROTC, which is a program that allows you to be an officer after college. And so I served as an officer for a little while before becoming an elementary school teacher. And during that time in the military, I developed some familiarity with military recruiters, military recruiters. Used car salesmen have the reputation for being fairly dishonest or saying whatever is necessary to complete the sale. And I might say that some military recruiters take a close second behind them. And I notice I said some because there are definitely some honorable uh, military recruiters with integrity. Military recruiters have to satisfy what's known as the commission mission, or they're trying to get as many people to sign on the dotted line as possible. And that's how they're evaluated, and so then, of course, their, their promotion is uh, related to how well they can get people to sign up. After looking at, and so you can imagine the great temptation for them to do what? We're going to need to do a little better than that this morning. <laughs> for them to do what? Yeah, exaggerate, lie, stretch the, the truth a little bit. After looking at a number of articles, here are the top five lies military recruiters tell people. Number one, there's a great chance you'll be stationed wherever you want. (laughs) Number two, there's almost no chance of you being sent to a combat zone. Number three, you're going to receive a large signing bonus. Number four, they don't yell at you in boot camp anymore. And then number five, you can quit anytime if you don't like it. (laughs) And so there are are these horror stories of individuals who have signed up for the military and then some years or maybe some months or maybe even some weeks later they've realized that what they were told uh, was not true. And I tell you all this because after I became a Christian in my early 20s and I started reading the Gospels for myself, I saw that Jesus is basically the opposite of military recruiters in two ways. One of the ways that he's the opposite of military recruiters is he's honest. He tells people the truth. He tells people what to expect. He doesn't want people deceived associated with following him. And the second way that I see Jesus being the opposite of a military recruiter is at times it actually seemed like he was trying to discourage people from following him. You did hear me say that correctly. It's almost like he was trying to discourage people from signing up on the dotted line. When you look at Jesus' interaction, you'd almost think that he didn't want people becoming his disciples because of how unattractive he made the, the uh, mission that people were going to be assigned sound when he talked about it with them. Let me give you a few examples so you don't think this is my opinion. Mark 8:34, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Does that make Jesus following Jesus sound attractive or unattractive? Okay, I only heard like one person. <laughs> All right. Think about when Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler. Mark 10, 21 says, Jesus looking at him, he loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. 
Now, Jesus wasn't upset with this man. We're told in the verse that Jesus loved him, and he did, in fact, invite that young man to follow him, but first he told him he had to go sell all his possessions. Now, that would be a very difficult request for anyone to receive, but it was particularly difficult for this man because of uh, his possessions had really become his, his idol. And so Jesus told him the one thing that would cause this man to turn back from following him, and that's exactly what happened. Now, this is what repentance looked like for this man. And so we want to make sure that we don't take what's descriptive and make it prescriptive. One of the major reasons that people walk away confused by God's word at times is they take what's described and then they prescribe it to themselves. And so just because there's a description of something doesn't mean that it's prescriptive for us. And so for this man, what a repentance look like for him? Because possessions were his idol, it looked like turning from them. So whatever that sin is in your life, there's going to be something you're going to have to give up um, when you started following Christ. And so for this man as possessions, for someone else, it would be something else that they have to repent from. But the point is, you notice that Jesus made following him sound very, very challenging to this individual. The next example, Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them. And I just want you to pause and picture in your minds what I just described. It says that there are great crowds following Jesus. And so first, what would you expect him to think at this moment? Wow, this is wonderful. Look at all these hundreds or thousands of people who are following me. And then second, what would you expect him to say to these people who are following him? Probably something very encouraging, something that's going to make them want to continue following him. Listen to what he said. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this isn't as literal as it sounds. Jesus often spoke in hyperbole or used exaggeration to drive home a point, and his point is simply, we, we know it's not as literal as it sounds, because elsewhere in scripture we're told that if you don't love or care for your family, you're worse than what? You're worse than an unbeliever or a pagan or an infidel. And, but Jesus' point was that you have to have such a love and commitment to him, such a loyalty and affection that your love and loyalty and affection to your family would pale in comparison to such a point that it would almost appear as though you hate others in your life when, that, when the relationship with them is contrasted with your relationship with Christ. So Jesus said this because he knew that many of the people following him were not true disciples. They hadn't been converted, and when difficult times came, they were going to come back. And so Jesus looks at all of these hundreds or thousands of people, and he realizes that it's time to trim the fat. It's time to cut the low-hanging fruit and let these people know what's involved and, and uh, allow them to return home. If you haven't already, please have your Bible open to Matthew 7. Take a look with me first at verse 13. Matthew 7, look with me at verse 13. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and then notice this, the way is hard or difficult that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus said the way is hard, and so we're doing people a terrible disservice when we make it sound like following Jesus is going to mean a carefree life that is absent of any struggles or, or trials or difficulties, 
You're doing people a terrible disservice. You're deceiving them when you uh, give them the impression that following Jesus is going to involve no sacrifice. And this is why I think it is so tragic that there are so many churches and so many pastors that look a lot more like military recruiters and look a lot less like Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. And it's a tragic uh, reflection of the church in our country that there are so many churches and pastors that look so much more like military recruiters and so much less like Jesus. Because if you look at the way that Jesus spoke to people in the Gospels and you appreciate the approach that he took, that's just not what you're going to see in very many churches today. This is actually what gave birth to what's known as the seeker-sensitive movement, or what I would call easy believism. Some churches will say that basically whatever they can to, to make following Jesus sound as attractive as possible. And so this is why you'll have lots of churches, or you'll have lots of youth camps, or you'll have lots of outreaches, and it, they'll make following Jesus sound like the most enjoyable thing imaginable. I was listening to some of Pastor Kerry's sermons before coming here, and I just want to tell you, this might be an unnecessary comment, but even if there's a few people that aren't aware of this, you're very blessed to have him as your pastor. You're very blessed to have a man who will preach the word to you boldly, that is not uh, intent on tickling your ears and trying to, to grow his church as quickly as, as possible, and you have a man who's committed to having disciples of Christ come in here and worship on Sundays, and so just appreciate him, encourage him, seek to be a blessing to him and his family. I've been a pastor coming up on a little over 10 years now, and it's challenging, and so seek to make his leadership in this church a blessing because he is a blessing to you through speaking the word so boldly and, and honestly. If you picture the typical easy believism American church, the pastor gets to the end of the sermon, and what does he typically say? He says something like, repeat this prayer after me, or say these words and, and you'll be saved, or go ahead and walk down this aisle and then you'll get to go to heaven. But imagine if that pastor actually quoted Jesus. What if the pastor said, if anyone would come after Jesus instead of raising his hand, he said, let him deny himself. If anyone would come after Jesus, let him take up his cross daily and follow him. How many people do you think are going to respond to that invitation? You know, let's picture eyes, eyes going down, people not wanting to, to make eye contact with the pastor, hoping that he doesn't look over and see them. The approach that many churches and pastors take has caused people to think that they're Christians when they're not. This is why the most recent Gallup poll that I could find, it, as, as early as, as recent as last year, said that 83% of people in the United States claim to be Christians. So that one more time, 83% of the people in this nation claim to be Christians, and if 83% of the people in this country were Christians, then I can tell you that our, our country would look a lot different. And so this statistic tells me two things. First, it tells me that there are a lot of deceived Americans, and second, it tells me that there are a lot of churches and pastors who are contributing to this deception. The problem with so many people thinking they're Christians is it's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. Let me say that one more time. The problem with so many people thinking they're Christians is it's the opposite of what Jesus taught. If you look back at Matthew 7, 13 and 14 with me, enter by the narrow gate, the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it or those who go to hell are what? What do your Bible say? It says many. And then the next verse, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are what? Are few. Now, you can read this passage as many times as you like. 
You read it hundreds of times, you can read it thousands of times, and it's still going to say the same thing. So regardless of what we think, regardless of what any Gallup polls tell us, regardless of what we want to believe, the truth is, it says here, and, and this isn't, and let me just be clear with you, I, I struggle with this. There's an amount of tension I have regarding what God's word says here, but I don't have the liberty to tell you what I want or what I think. My responsibility is to, is to tell you what God's word says. So don't think that just because I share this with you that I'm completely comfortable with it or I find any enjoyment in this reality. But you do need to know that this is what God's word said, that many people are going to hell and few people are going to heaven. Now, what percent is many and few? Are, are we talking 60-40? Are we talking 70-30, maybe 80-20 or 90-10? I don't know what the exact percent is, but I know that because it says many and few right here, this should be very sobering to us. This should be very, very sobering to us. I want to share a story with you from my life that comes back to when I was taking part in that uh, Army ROTC training when I was in college. ROTC is a four-year program, and between your junior and senior year, you go to Fort Lewis, Washington. So I had no idea I'd end up in Washington being a pastor 20 years ago when I first was sent to, to Fort Lewis. And so you go to Fort Lewis, Washington between your junior and senior year of college for what's known as advanced camp. And that's where you're really tested on everything that you've learned in the previous three years. Then you come back as a senior and you help train the juniors to prepare them to go to advanced camp that summer. And you're tested in all these different areas. And one of the ways that you're tested is regarding land nav or land navigation. And you're given a compass and you're given a map and you're told to go find all these different points that are so many miles away from each other. And the problem is thousands of cadets across the nation are all going to Fort Lewis, Washington every summer to find these points. So hundreds of thousands of cadets have walked through the, the forest around Fort Lewis, Washington looking for these points. And so can you guess what it creates a lot of? It creates a lot of paths, a lot of different paths where people have walked. And so what happens is you're heading down toward a point and you'll see a few different paths. And you'll tend to think, well, this one looks like the most people have walked on it, so this must be the right one. This has a lot more wear and tear on it. And so I'm certain this must be the path that's going to, to lead to the right destination. The other thing you tend to tell yourself is, you might be, I must be going the right way because there are so many other people who have went this way. And all these people can't be wrong. There's no way that if I went this way and all these other people went this way that I could be wrong because they couldn't all be wrong. So you take the path and the main thing that you're telling yourself is, well, this must be the right way because so many other people have went this way. And then you take your little answer key back to get it scored and the military is very efficient. And so you get to sit there and watch them while they correct your points. And you turn in the scorecard and then right in front of you, you see that you got some of those points wrong because you're simply following the path that the most people had walked on. And the reason that I mention all this is this is what I think of when I look at these words from Jesus here in Matthew 7, 13, and 14. I think many people determine what's right and wrong by what path looks the widest, by what path looks the most walked on. And what's interesting is if you take Jesus' words literally, then you see that you're going the right way if you're on the path that's kind of going the, the other direction of everyone else. You see that you're going the right way if you're on the narrow path, the path that the fewest number of people are walking. I mean, just to be clear with you, the main reason that the wide path has to be so wide is so it can accommodate all of the false religions. 
The reason it's so wide is so it can fit Mormonism, so it can fit Hinduism, so it can fit Buddhism, so it, it can fit Jehovah's Witnesses, so it can fit all of the cults, and so it can fit all of the false religions of the world. I mean, if you're going that same path as all these other religions, that's evidence that you're going the wrong way. Now, I want to explain what Jesus does in, in verses 21 to 23, which will be our main focus for the rest of this morning. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, many people are going to hell. What he does in verses 21 through 23 is he describes a specific group from that many that's going to hell. Let me say that one more time. In verses 13 and 14, he talked about many people going to hell. In verses 21 to 23, he zooms, on, zooms in on one group out of that many that is on their way to hell, that is going to be kept out of heaven. Look with me at verse 21. <clears throat> Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll tell you, I think these are the most terrifying verses in Scripture. You heard me say that, right? I think these are the most terrifying verses in Scripture. And the reason I say that is these verses are not discussing unbelievers or atheists. They're not discussing unbelievers or atheists. We would expect unbelievers and atheists to be kept out of heaven. These verses are not even discussing people in false religions like Buddhism or Hinduism. And the reason I say that is because the people in those religions wouldn't be calling Jesus what? He wouldn't be calling them Lord. We expect people in false religions to be kept out of heaven. These verses are discussing people who actually call Jesus Lord. If you look at their words, it's written in such a way so as to communicate their shock. Their astonishment comes forth, or, you know, that's probably too, too uh, soft. It's not their shock, and it's not their astonishment. It's their horror. That's what they're experiencing. The verses are written in such a way so as to capture the horror of these individuals who learn on this day, which is the day of judgment, that they're going to be kept out of heaven. When you can tell that they thought that's where they were going to be going, verse 22, it ends with a question mark. They say, what, Lord? You know, didn't we? How can this be? They were deceived about their salvation, and the reason that it's more terrifying is it says that there are many people in this category. If you look back at the beginning of verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? And so there are many people who are going to feel not just this shock and astonishment, but this horror that these people are, are feeling. I got this one opportunity with you. I mean, I'll come back in September, and I don't know how many of you will come out for that marriage conference, but with this one opportunity I have to address you, I, I want to do my best to ensure that you don't find yourself in this category of people experiencing this sort of shock and horror. The reason I think this sermon is so important <clears throat> is your, this church is very much like our church, the church that I pastor. In, in many ways, there are many similarities. And the thing is, when you're in a conservative Bible-teaching church, when you have children who have been growing up immersed in a Christian culture, when you attend a church like this week after week after week, and you, and you feel like, well, we're not like all those other churches that are, you know, doing it wrong and don't preach the word boldly and aren't, aren't conservative like we are, it's easy to think that you're saved simply because you're religious. Or it's easy to think you're saved because your church gets it right. 
Or if you're a child, and if I can get all the children to look up at me for just a moment, so if you're a child, look at me, and if you're a parent, you can nudge your children, get them to look up at me. <laughs> you can think you're saved because you were born into a Christian family. You can think that you're saved if you're a child simply because your parents bring you to church week after week. But God has no grandchildren. Do you know what that means? He only has children. You have to become a child of God. You can't have a relationship with Christ through your parents. So as you get older, you're going to have to make that decision for yourself whether you want to follow Christ. Being brought to church throughout your whole life doesn't mean anything. You're going to have to repent of your sins, cry out to God for mercy, recognizing you're a sinner, and, and pray that he saves you. And fortunately, by God's grace, he is a saving God. But that's something that everyone has to do, regardless of whether you've been going to church for as long as you can remember. I don't want any of you, any of the children or any of the adults, deceived about their salvation. I hope this sermon can encourage all of us, including even my children who are here, to examine our faith. So let's study these people and learn what we can from them about why it is that they're kept out of heaven. I want you to notice the list of things they did. Notice there they mentioned these things. They prophesied in Christ's name. They cast out demons in your name, they said, and they said, didn't we even do many mighty works in your name? And the problem for these people is this, and don't miss me when I say this, there are no amount of works that can get you into heaven. That is the problem for these people. There are no amount of works that can get you into heaven. And this brings us to lesson one, lesson one on your bulletins. Even spectacular works won't get you into heaven. Even spectacular works won't get you into heaven. They've done some great things for God, but the problem is religion doesn't get you into heaven. Going to church doesn't get you into heaven. Even doing these wonderful things that these people did doesn't get you into heaven. And these verses probably more than any other. I mean, if I say, hey, where does the Bible talk about being saved by grace through faith and not by works? You say Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But I'll tell you, I think these verses might be the strongest in all of scripture showing that no amount of works can get people into heaven. Because if anyone could be saved by works at these people, right? A key verse to understanding this is 1 John 2, 9. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And this verse is making an important point, and I want to make sure you don't miss. Before these people went out, how did they look? Or what did they look like? They look like what? Christians. They look like believers. They look like they were saved. That's the point that you wouldn't even know that they were not of us until they went out. They looked so much like they were of us that it took them going out to reveal that they weren't really Christians. And so the point is, they look like Christians or believers. They would have looked like Christians or believers for the rest of their lives if they hadn't gone out. And the question I have for you is, what was it that allowed them to look like Christians? or believers. It was their works. It was their works. It was those things that they did. And if you follow me for a moment, verse 22 is pretty much the opposite of what you'd expect to read. It's the opposite in this sense. Because these people were kept out of heaven, you would expect to read that they had done nothing for the Lord. Since they're kept out of heaven, you would expect to learn that they have lived totally selfishly, that, they've, that they haven't served the Lord in any capacity whatsoever, that they've essentially wasted all of their lives, but that's not at all. Far from having not done anything for the Lord, they've actually accomplished a considerable amount for him. 
Now, it might be hard to believe that unbelievers were doing the wonderful things that are described here in verse 22. You could look at this and say, well, how could they be unbelievers if they did these things? Maybe they're lying about what they did. There's no indication that their claims are false. We need to understand that what they claim to have done here, Jesus doesn't discount it. He doesn't disprove it, that they did these things. Now, when we hear the word prophesy, we quickly think of foretelling the future. 1 Corinthians 14.3 tells us that prophecy has more the idea of foretelling God's word. Let me say that one more time. Prophesying has more the idea of foretelling God's word. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And so let me ask you this. Are there a lot of talented Bible teachers or pastors or preachers or evangelists who are not saved who look like great preachers, who look very talented, who look very gifted, only until some scandal breaks, and then it's revealed that they probably were not Christians. Just recently, there, in the community where I live, there's a fairly prominent individual. I don't need to mention his name necessarily, but he's received some amount of national and I think international attention regarding his, his preaching. He's invited to different conferences and so forth, and he... This church has recently made a statement that he was involved in in a number of adulterous relationships, a number of plural relationships for who knows how many years, and and the number of people who had looked up to him and hopefully not put him on a pedestal. But the point is, this man looked like he could prophesy. This man looked like he could bring God's word and convict people. Second, it says they did many mighty works in the Lord's name. And you can look at that and say, well, can, can unbelievers perform miracles? We know unbelievers can perform, perform miracles. Just take your minds to Exodus. Who was performing miracles in competition with Moses? I mean, it was Pharaoh's magicians who were performing those miracles, and they definitely were not believers. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus said, false Christ, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, so unbelievers can perform miracles. So this is what I would say, and this is important. Their claims are not false, but their claims are insufficient. And what I mean by that is their claims are not false in the sense of being untrue, but they are insufficient regarding being able to save them. Salvation has never been available for people who do enough great or wonderful things for the Lord. And this actually reveals their problem because you can tell from the way that they speak that their confidence was where? Was their confidence in Christ? Their confidence was in themselves. That's what they mention. That's what they quote. You can tell that they're not clinging to Christ. You can tell that they have not repented of their sins and looked to him in faith. Their confidence was in their works. They even question the Lord and they say, didn't we do these great things? How can you not be pleased with us? Look at what we've done for you. Look at our lives and and how we've lived. Here's what they didn't say. They didn't say, didn't we repent of our sins and put our faith in you? Because if they had done that, then they wouldn't be standing here before Christ at this moment. So they seem to have a pretty high assessment of themselves. But it's not an issue of whether we have a high assessment of ourselves. It's not how we view ourselves. It's how the Lord views us. And the Lord knew that these people were sinners, and if we're trusting in our works instead of trusting in him, then he's not going to view us very well. The fact is, if you have a high assessment of yourself, you're probably not going to heaven because you're proud. You think that you're not a sinner. You think that you're a good person. I spent 20 20 years of my life in a works-based religion. 
I was raised and, and brought to church, you know, pretty much every Sunday by my parents. I was raised in a very devout Catholic home. 20-some years convinced that I was a good person, convinced that I was going to be saved because I was baptized as a baby, um, you know, celebrated my first communion and confirmed and so forth. And so I can relate to these people because this is exactly what I would have said to Christ. Well, Jesus, didn't I? Wasn't I baptized? Wasn't I confirmed? Didn't I go to church those Sundays? Wasn't I religious? And I want you to consider something else. Verse 22 is written in a very important way that prevents us from having any doubts or questions. And here's what I mean. If the works that were listed were not very spectacular or were not spectacular at all, guess what you might say? You would say, well, maybe if they had just done a little more. Maybe if they had done something that was just a little better. Like, for example, if they turned to Jesus and they said, well, didn't we go to church? Didn't we love our children? Didn't we help people? then we would look and say, well, that's not very spectacular. Maybe that's why they didn't go to heaven, because their works just weren't good enough, and if they had been a little better. So what you get here is you get a list of spectacular works that nobody's going to look at and say what? Well, they could have done better. They could have done more than that. That wasn't spectacular enough. In fact, it's written in such a way that you won't say that, so you can be completely convinced that there's no amount of works, not even spectacular ones, that can get you into heaven. So let me say this very clearly. You can prophesy, you can cast out demons, you can even perform miracles, and you can be kept out of heaven. And that's not my opinion. That's exactly what Jesus just said. I'll give you one perfect example of this. Before Jesus sent out the 12 apostles, do you remember what he did, how he equipped them? He gave them supernatural power and authority to perform miracles and to cast out demons. And it says they departed. They went through all the villages in Luke 9, 6, preaching the gospel, healing everywhere. Who was one of those 12 that received the supernatural power and performed these miracles and exercised demons? Judas was. And Judas is going to be kept out of heaven. And so he's a prime example of what Jesus is talking about here. Look at verse 23 to see what Jesus says to these people. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And you can go ahead and pause right here. Now, this might sound oddly written to you because we live in a Christian culture that commonly says things like, does he know the Lord? Does she know the Lord? Do they know the Lord? And so we don't expect to read Jesus saying, I never knew you. We would expect Jesus to say, you never knew knew me, right? That's what we'd expect him to say to them. And this teaches that it's not an issue of whether people say that they know the Lord. The issue brings us to lesson two on your bulletins. Lesson two, the question is, does the Lord know you? The question is, does the Lord know you? How am I doing on time here? Okay. I'll just pretend, I'll pretend like I have a lot of time left. <laughs> if you're in your Bible, you can circle the words, I never knew you, and you can write Galatians 4.9. I rarely tell my congregation to circle in their Bibles and write things. I, I love when the, uh, the people God allows me to shepherd have a great familiarity with their Bible, even somewhat of a relationship with it where they know where to find things. And so you can circle the words, I never knew you, and you can write Galatians 4.9. Galatians 4.9 explains what's going on here. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Let me say that one more time. Galatians 4.9. Now that you have come to know God, or rather 
to be known by God. The issue is being known by God, and the people in verse 23 were not known by God. Now, the reason this is so important, and the reason that I want to stress this to you, is many people in cults will tell you about Christ, and they will tell you that they know Christ. It was only a few weeks ago, I think, we were sitting in the living room looking out the front window of my house, and these two very sharp-dressed young men walked by with their white shirts and their black ties, and they had their little books under their on their sides, and, and I grabbed my children, and I said, you need to know, I don't take any pleasure in saying this, but they will tell you lies, damning lies, and I know many Mormons, I'm, I'm friends with some of them, and um, I, they might even consider me friends. I want to have a good relationship with them so that I can share the gospel with them, but the point is, they preach lies that will send people to hell, and they don't know Christ, but if you talk to them, Mormons will tell you about Jesus, Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you about Jesus, even Muslims will tell you about Jesus, because they consider him to be what? A very revered and respected prophet, but the fact is the Lord doesn't know them. He doesn't know them, and so when they're talking to you and they're telling you all about Jesus, they're trying to convince you that they know the Lord. You might turn and ask them and say, okay, you think you know the Lord, but does the Lord know you? Does Christ know you? Have you? Are you still trying to be saved by works? Are you still preaching a false gospel, which according to Paul in Galatians 1 says you should be accursed for doing that? Do you think Christ knows you if you're preaching a false gospel of salvation by works? No, he doesn't. The people in verse 22 think they have a relationship with Jesus, but Jesus clearly didn't say it that, see it that way. He tells them it's the opposite of what they thought. And I want you to notice one other thing here. Let me ask you this is Jesus ending his relationship with them? The word never shows what? There never was a relationship. This is not a breakup. This is not a relationship that's coming to a conclusion. These people did not lose their salvation. He said, I never knew you. It's not like they were born again and then unborn or saved and then became unsaved. They never had a relationship with Christ. Now, the obvious question is, why didn't the Lord know these people? One of the reasons that Jesus didn't know them has already been revealed, or I've already discussed it. They thought that they were saved by works versus being saved by grace through faith. But the other reason Jesus didn't know them is shown in the rest of verse 23. If you look there with me, the rest of verse 23, Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So even though these people had performed some number of good works for Christ, and even though they repeatedly called him Lord, Lord, it seems to have been lip service. Lord means master, but Jesus was not the master of their lives. Twice, Jesus pointed out to them the habitually sinful nature um, of their lifestyles. In verse 21, for example, look in verse 21, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father, which implies that these people hadn't been doing what? The will of the father. They had not been obeying God. Now Jesus says they're workers of lawlessness, or uh, NASB, I believe that's what you use here, says they practice lawlessness. First John 3, 4 says sin is lawlessness. So Jesus doesn't say they were workers of lawlessness. He says that they are workers of lawlessness. Because there's a sense in which all of us, especially if you got saved later in life, we were workers of lawlessness. We did have lives previously characterized by sin, but then you repent, come to faith in Christ, and, life, and sin does not characterize your life anymore. You still sin, but you don't engage in sin habitually. 
People should not be able to look at your life and think that it's indistinguishable from the lives of unbelievers. But for these people, their lives were characterized by sinfulness. He says that they were workers of lawlessness. And this brings us to lesson three on your bulletins. Lack of repentance keeps you out of heaven. Lesson three, lack of repentance keeps you out of heaven. They were presently workers of lawlessness because they had never repented and turned to Christ. Listen to this verse from Paul. I think he must have had Jesus' words in mind when he wrote this. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul said, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart or turn or repent of iniquity. Now, the people in Matthew 7, they did part of this. They named the name of the Lord, but they had not done what? They had not departed from iniquity. We're looking at the main problem associated with the false gospel of easy believism. It does not preach repentance. And so what you have is you have people who've been told, if you just, if you just believe, if you just raise your hand, if you just repeat these words after me, then you're going to be saved. It often leaves out repentance. And without repentance, there is no salvation. And the reason the easy believism is so dangerous is it is so close to the gospel. It has so much truth in it. I mean, we know we're saved by grace through faith. And so when people preach a gospel of easy believism, it does sound very close to the truth, but it, it lacks the, the proclamation of repentance that's necessary. Saving faith and repentance go hand in hand. And if you just think about it, you know, it's like a plane flying in two different directions. You can't cling to Christ and cling to your sin. You can't love Christ and look to the cross and be thankful for the sacrifice he made while loving your sin and wanting to hold on to it. Now, we're still going to sin and we fail and and we need to continue repenting throughout our Christian lives. But if you're just holding on to that sin that you love more than you love Christ, then he's not your Lord. You can't go in two different directions like that. Let me show you how important repentance is. If you look back at verse 22, you can see the things that don't take the place of repentance. Let me say that one more time. If you look at verse 22, you can see three things that don't serve as substitutes for repentance. You can prophesy in Christ's name. You can cast out demons in Christ's name. You can perform many mighty works in Christ's name, and those don't serve as substitutes for repentance. And the problem for these people is they had not repented. They did these dramatic things, but they still kept, as Jesus says, just so you see yourself and don't think I'm imagining this, he said that they kept doing what? They kept practicing lawlessness. They're engaging in this habitually. They had not repented. And this is why we see so many people claiming to be Christians, but they're living in habitual sin. This is why we see people who claim to be Christians and perhaps their lives are characterized by fornication or drunkenness or lying or addictions to pornography or giving themselves over habitually to anger and yelling at their their children or their families. This is why we see so many people who claim to be Christians, but their lives are largely indistinguishable from unbelievers. And I'll just say this. If people can look at your life and there's no difference between you and the unbelievers that they know, you need to really examine your faith. You need to really question whether you have committed your life to Christ or not. Or maybe you happen to believe some false gospel that if you just said these words or just believe what this man said. I'll tell you one time I was at a Christian camp when I was in California before I came to Washington. 
And I was there hundreds, or maybe there were thousands of young people at this camp. And we get to the end of camp, and this gentleman who had been leading all the teaching finishes the youth camp in this very climatic way where emotionally he's appealing to everyone and he says you know if you'll just walk down here and so so many so many of these young people get up and they walk down this aisle and i knew a lot of them because i had brought some number of them there from the church where i was serving when we are turned back to let's say came down from the mountain of that very uh, emotional experience for them after this man had guaranteed these young people that they were saved most of them went back to the same sins that they had been struggling with prior to going to camp in the first place they went back to drunkenness they went back to the fornication they went back to the pornography they went back to the language and crude jokes that they told the girls went back to the um, continually immodestly dressed apparel to get as much attention from young men as they could my point is they were convinced by this man that they now belonged to the Lord, but there was no change in their lives whatsoever. And now they were in an even worse position because there had been this man that they respected. who He had been invited to this camp to be the speaker there. He must be credible. The things he said must be true, or he wouldn't be there speaking to thousands of young people. And so now, where they previously might have been convicted about their salvation, now they're confident in it because this man had told them that. And I'd even tell you, I don't want to pry too much into your parenting, but parents, if you'll just give me a moment, use the word if with your children. Use the word if. Tell your children if you have repented, if you have put your faith in Christ and you're saved. But don't make guarantees to your children that you can't really guarantee because just by a show of hands, if you're a parent and you can look inside at your child's heart and see when they're regenerated and sealed by the Holy Spirit, raise your hand. So don't make those guarantees because we don't know for sure. But here's the guarantee you can make. You can guarantee your children if you have repented and if you have put your faith in Christ, you're saved. But don't say you repeated these words and now you're saved and guarantee them of that because you don't know what transpired or perhaps what didn't transpire in their hearts. When you talk to people who claim to be Christians, but they have these lives of habitual sin, they're largely indistinguishable from unbelievers, they will call you legalistic when you address them about their lifestyles, and this is because they have been fed lies. They have been told that following Jesus meant their lives did not have to change at all. They were told that following Jesus meant no sacrifice. It would cost them nothing. All they needed to do was, and then just fill in the blank with whatever they were told. But in Luke 5.32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance now the way many altar calls take place or the way evangelism takes place in our country you almost think those last two words are erased from most bibles as though jesus just said i have not come to call the righteous but sinners but he called them to repentance all these people say lord lord but here's the question i'd ask you what good is their lip service if there's no repentance because let me ask you a simple question what's harder what's harder saying the right thing or doing the right thing or another way to say it is this is it harder to say lord lord or is it harder to live lord lord now these people said lord lord but they didn't live lord lord if they had he would have been their master they would not have been practicing lawlessness like this i want you to notice one more thing about verse 23 notice the words depart from me depart from me 
I would say these words are relatively uncharacteristic of our Savior. These words show a certain scornful uh, dignity that did not come from Christ very often, except perhaps like in Matthew 23 when he's when he um, brings that scathing criticism of the religious leader. Normally, Christ's words are fairly gracious and, and compassionate, but he says these words, and they are said without a hint of pity. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't feel compassion for these people, but I am saying you don't see it in these verses. You can read these verses a hundred times, and you will not see a hint of compassion or pity from Christ when he says this. Again, I'm not saying he didn't feel pity or compassion, but I'm saying you can't draw that out of these verses. He says this in such a strong way to them, and it begs the question, why? How could he talk to people like this who seem to have done some number of things for him? How can there be so much scorn in his voice when he says this? How do we explain this hostility that Jesus seems to feel toward these people? And I think the answer can only be contained in the word hypocrisy. There was a hypocrisy associated with their lives that I think angered Christ. They said Jesus was Lord, but they didn't live it. It would be better not to call Jesus Lord than to call Jesus Lord and not live it. And that's what these people did. They spent their lives calling Jesus Lord, professing him, but living as though he wasn't Lord. And that's even worse because then that makes you a hypocrite. And that's what these people were. And I think that's the only way to explain the sort of hostility that typically didn't characterize Jesus' earthly interaction with people. I want to show you one more verse. Turn to 2 Corinthians 13. Second Corinthians 13. We won't turn back to Matthew, so you don't have to mark it. While you turn, I'll just briefly share something. This is why when you preach the gospel, you're not trying to appeal to people's emotions. You're not trying to stir them up emotionally because what happens with emotions and feelings? They come and go. If you get someone all charged up emotionally, but you have not appealed to them intellectually, there's a reason when you read Acts that it says Paul went into the synagogues and he did what with the people? He reasoned. Does it say he tried to stir them up emotionally into some fervor and get them to repeat some words? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's how you have to appeal to people. You have to appeal to them that they see they're sinners who need a savior. But if you just stir someone up into some, some fervor and get them to say some words, what happens when they come out of that fervor? That's not the way to appeal to people. Now, in 2 Corinthians thirteen five, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, the context for this verse is the Corinthians were criticizing Paul. They were criticizing his preaching. They were criticizing his um, authority as an apostle. And I've noticed in ministry that often those who are quickest to condemn others are often guilty of worse sins themselves. Let me say that one more time. I've just noticed this. Maybe your experiences have been different in the church. But in the 10 years of pastoral ministry, I've noticed that those who are quickest to condemn 
others are often those who are uh, guilty of worse sins themselves. And that's the case here. You have people who are questioning, of all people, the Apostle Paul. You know you're in a pretty bad place when you start criticizing Paul, right? But that's what they're doing. So Paul turns the table on them. And he says, instead of examining my preaching ability, you need to examine what? Yourself, your faith. Instead of testing my apostleship, you need to test your salvation. He wanted them to apply the same standard to themselves that they applied to him. And if they did, then they could realize that Jesus Christ is in them, unless they failed to meet that test. And this brings us to our last lesson, lesson four. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Lesson four, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. What Paul said to these people is very good advice for any of us. And I would ask, how many people have done what Paul commanded the Corinthians to do? How many of us have examined ourselves? How many of us have put our faith to the test? In other words, how many of us have have asked this question, am I saved? If you look at Paul's words there, have you done what he said in verse 5? Now, here's the thing. If you test yourself, per se, test your salvation, examine your faith, and you come to the conclusion that, no, you're probably not saved, let me tell you, that is a wonderful thing to realize now. That is a really, really tremendous thing to realize now versus having to realize that when? When you stand before Christ and have to hear the words, depart from me. Because if you realize that now, you can humble yourself. You can fall on your face. You can cry out to God for mercy. You can confess your sinfulness and declare that there's no good thing in you and that you're a wretched sinner who needs to be saved by the precious blood of Christ. But if you don't realize that now and you go through life in a deceived state, then you could end up hearing those words from Jesus, depart from me. If someone asked me why I was confident in my salvation, hear me, I don't want anyone to think I'm a heretic when I say this, okay? You're gonna, I don't want anyone to start texting Pastor Kerry out on his cruise and saying, you shouldn't have brought this guy here, he's a heretic. <laughs> if someone asked me why I was confident in my salvation, I would not say because I've repented of my, faith, or repented of my sins and put my faith in Christ. That's how to be saved, That's not why you should be confident in your salvation. If someone asked me why I thought I I was saved, I would say because I have administered tests in Scripture to myself, and those tests have given me confidence in my faith. And so if I asked you and I said, why do you think you're saved? And you say, by grace through faith or because I've repented and put my faith in Christ, I would tell you that that's not a very good answer. That's how to be saved, but if you want to be confident in your faith, it needs to be examined. It's not a question of how to be saved, it's a question of why you think you're saved. We're saved by grace through faith, so what do we need to make sure of regarding that faith? If we're saved by grace through faith, we need to make sure that that faith is what? Real, genuine, sincere. It needs to be tested. First Peter 1.6, you rejoice, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then you can obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We should test ourselves to make sure our faith is genuine. Peter says that's what trials do. Now, let's be honest. Nobody likes trials. We all hate trials. They are painful. But here is the wonderful blessing associated with trials. When you come out the other side, 
and you still love Christ, you have not cursed him like Job's wife said he should do, right? If you ever wonder why Satan let her live, that's why, after killing everyone else. And so Job told, or Job's wife said, curse God and die. When you come out of trials and you haven't done that, and you're still clinging to Christ, as terrible as those trials might have been, there's that wonderful blessing associated with being confident in your salvation, knowing it has withstood tests, knowing that it's genuine and sincere. If you've lost a loved one, and I don't know any of you, maybe you've lost a child. Maybe someone you loved abandoned you and and went and had a relationship with someone else. Maybe one of your children rebelled and you happen to know that Proverbs says, train up your children the way they should go and when they're old, they will not depart from it. And maybe you're even wondering if, if you should feel like God betrayed you. You come out from a trial like that and you still have your faith in Christ. That's a faith that has been tested. It has been refined, been examined, and you can be blessed because of the sincerity of it. This is one of the five tests that I would encourage you to administer to yourself. I want to briefly review the others with you. They're on the bottom of your bulletin. If you look with me at test one, look with me at test one. Have I experienced godly sorrow that produces repentance? Have I experienced godly sorrow that produces repentance? Who experiences sorrow? Just say everyone. Let's do that again. Who experiences sorrow? Everyone. Everyone experiences sorrow. It is no big deal to experience sorrow. But in this verse, 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul discusses two types of sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but worldly sorrow produces death. And this is the first test because salvation begins with repentance, like we talked about earlier, and it's not enough to just be sorry. You've got to have a godly sorrow. What are courtrooms filled with every time a guilty verdict is read. Sorrow. What are children filled with every time they know they're about to be spanked? <laughs> we hope as parents that it's what kind of sorrow. And we're hoping that maybe this spanking will produce that if that's not what it is, right? But children are filled with sorrow when they know they're going to be punished. Adults are filled with sorrow when they lose their job or their spouse leaves them. It's not necessarily godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a brokenness over the sin you've committed, sin against a holy God who loves you and offered his son. And when you're grieved in that way, that's godly sorrow. When you're grieved because you got caught, or you're grieved because you're going to go to jail, or you're grieved because you got a ticket, or you're grieved because you're going to be spanked, you're grieved because you're going to be punished, that's not godly sorrow, that's worldly sorrow. So that's the first step. Test two, has my repentance produced fruit? Test two, has my repentance produced fruit? This is a test to see if your repentance is genuine. It's almost like a test for a test. <laughs> and here's why I say this. When we talk about repentance, we often think of stopping. I want to encourage you, if you can take this away from this sermon, I will be so blessed because I think there is so much confusion regarding repentance. I say the word repent and you think of stopping. That's not, what are you going to do with that vacuum that's left? Repentance isn't just about stopping. It's also about what you're going to start. That's why Paul says you don't just put off, you also put on. It's about severing and then replacing. Or you end up in that parable Jesus taught of the unclean spirit that leaves the house and the house remains, what, empty? And then the demon returns and the man finds himself in an even worse state. What are you going to do with that vacuum? You stopped going to bars. What did you stop doing? 
You stopped yelling at your children. What did you start saying to them? And so it's not just about what you stop. It's about the fruit that's produced. Matthew 3, 8, John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Think about that. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If repentance is just stopping, why does John mention bearing fruit? Because when you stop that, there's going to be something you're going to start, some fruit that's produced. And that's how you tell if your repentance is genuine, that you put on something else, that you started producing something in its place. Test three, has my faith persevered through trials? We just talked about this one a little bit. Has my faith persevered through trials? When your faith is tested by trials and survived and you can be confident in it, there's a wonderful blessing associated with that. Test four, is my life characterized by obedience? Now, works don't save, but works are the evidence of a saving faith. Works don't save, but works are the evidence of salvation. Works don't save, but works are what you produce if you are saved. I could say any number of other ways, but I think you get the point. And so when you see a person and there's no works or fruit in that person's life, but they claim to be a Christian, that is very concerning. There should be works or fruit that show that our faith is living and active. Then test five, test five, do I practice sinning? Now, this might sound similar to test four, but scripture differentiates between a life characterized by obedience and someone who practices sinning. And because scripture differentiates or makes that distinction, I want to as well. Believers sin. We all sin, we all fail, but what do we not do with sin? We don't practice it. We don't live in it. It does not characterize our lives. It's not habitual for us. And so if you talk to someone and the person says, well, I sinned, and then I sinned again, and I sinned again, and I sinned again, and I don't really feel bad about it because I know I'm forgiven by Christ. It's very concerning. We don't practice sin. If you're practicing sin or living in sin habitually, you've really got to question whether you have surrendered your life to Christ or not. Test six, do I have a spiritual hunger and thirst? Do I have a spiritual hunger and thirst? Now, I will be the first to say that none of us always feel like reading our Bibles. None of us always feel like praying. None of us always feel like being in fellowship. None of us always feel like worshiping God. And none of us always hop out of bed Sunday morning ready to go to church. But I would also say this. If you never want to do some of those things, there's something wrong. We don't all want to do them all the time. But if you never want to do them, if you never want to pray, you never want to be in fellowship. You're being dragged to church by your spouse. You're being dragged to church by your parents if you're a child. You never want to read the word. You never want to be with other believers. You're always looking forward to those opportunities to be with your unbelieving friends. There's something wrong with that. As Christians, we should have a spiritual hunger and thirst. On this side of heaven, nothing about us is perfect, so we don't crave these things all the time, but we should still crave them. We should still spiritually hunger and thirst for these activities. And if you don't ever, there's something wrong with that. How can we be born again and not crave those things that are associated with that new life? How can you be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, brought to life spiritually, and not crave that unity with the Lord that comes from prayer, comes from reading the word? And so I want to encourage you, administer these tests to yourself. I've tried to administer these tests 
to myself, giving myself these tests and saying, does it seem like my faith stands up against these tests when I examine it? Is it sincere? Is it genuine? Can it be tested by trials? Can it survive that fire? Do I spiritually hunger and thirst? Is my life characterized by obedience? Is there some habitual sin in my life? These are the tests that we need to, to administer to ourselves. Now, here's one last thing. Let me get a drink of water. That's not the last thing. <laughs> as much as these tests can sound very discouraging regarding making people recognize they're not saved, these verses can be equally encouraging when you administer them to yourself and become confident in your faith. They work. It's a double-edged sword. I hope that these verses discourage those people who truly aren't saved from thinking they're saved, but I hope those of you who are saved, born again, regenerate, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, and minister these tests to yourself. And maybe you've had doubts, and I hope these tests alleviate your doubts. Maybe you're a saved person, and you've said, oh, you know, I don't really know. Oh, I still struggle. Oh, I still have doubts. I hope you can administer these tests, and they can give you more confidence in your salvation, and those doubts can be alleviated. Now, if you have any questions, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how Pastor Kerry does things here. I, I was told, I think, that he, he generally tries to go and meet new people when they're exiting. I'll just say this morning, I will be hanging around up front here. If you have any questions about anything that I shared, if you would like prayer for anything, please believe me when I say this, I would consider it a tremendous privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you, answer any of your questions, pray with you so you can come up here and you can see me um, near the pulpit. And thank you for this opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. It was a real joy for me. I look forward to seeing you in the not-too-distant future. I'll be back in the middle of September. I hope you can come out for that marriage conference. I think I may be preaching on Sunday, too, so I'll get, you see, get to see you then, too. And keep Pastor Kerry and Lois and Chris and his wife in your prayers while they're on, on this cruise, that they can come back refreshed and, and uh, ready to continue shepherding and, and serving you. So let me go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Even the very hard truths contained in it, like we read in Matthew uh, 7, 21 through 23, and Matthew 7, 13 and 14. And I thank you for the opportunity you've given me to address these people, and I would pray that we would take our salvation seriously because eternity is very, very long. It's not something that we want to be wrong about, Lord. I would pray that for those who are here who are Christians, that you would give them confidence in their salvation. That, that they can look forward to eternity with you. And I'd pray that if there are any unbelievers here who are not yet born again, especially those who would be deceived about their salvation, that you would convict them greatly about that. And that it would bear witness to them that they have not truly repented and surrendered their lives to Christ. And so I pray that that's something you would bring about in their hearts or that we would surrender our lives to you. We do thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We want to grow in our love for him and affection for him and continue that sanctifying work that allows us to become more like him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.